0: There's a real passion to embrace a clean energy future and to really invest in our communities in a way that would be equitable and truly sustainable.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Ben Stockdale. Hello, Squeaky Clean listeners, and welcome to the 33rd episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, bringing the latest in clean energy right to your ears. We have got a great episode lined up for you today with some much needed good news. But before we get started, I want to talk a bit about a very important and special project that NCSEA facilitates. Our Women in Clean Energy Project, aka WISE, is a network of support, camaraderie, and opportunity for self-identifying women in the North Carolina clean energy industry. WEIS established a mentorship program that pairs women of all experience levels with women who are clean energy professionals. And this year, we launched our 2020 WEIS campaign, where we are seeking financial support to continue and expand our work to support women in our industry. So personal side note here, I know I have been in far too many rooms and meetings in the clean energy industry where there are either no women or a very disparate ratio of men to women. And if you're in this industry too, I would be surprised if you have not had a similar experience. So if you have had similar experiences and see this as we do as an issue in something that needs to be rectified, then help us change this unbalanced dynamic. Please visit energync.org slash W-I-C-E 2020 and give what you can to this important initiative. In other news, we are continuing the NCSEA Making Energy Work webinar series on August 11th at 3 p.m. Where we will be discussing innovative financing models for low and moderate income participation in clean energy with leaders in our state and nationally. To register for this webinar and others in the series, please visit makingenergywork.com. Okay, well, that covers the NCSCA updates, so let's jump into today's episode, shall we? Hey! Clean energy! Woo. Our guest today is a senior attorney with the Southern Environmental Law Center, where he focuses on clean energy and environmental justice. Prior to joining SELC, he had a career in indigent criminal defense work. Our guest is the co-founder and former executive director of the Fair Trial Initiative, a nonprofit that worked to improve the quality of representation received by people facing the death penalty. He serves on the boards of Z. Smith Reynolds Foundation and Repairers of the Breach. He completed his undergraduate degree at Oberlin College and law degree at UNC School of Law in Chapel Hill. Before law school, our guest worked as a Peace Corps volunteer in Turkmenistan. Friends of the pod, let's give a squeaky clean welcome to today's very special guest, David Neal. David, welcome to the pod.
0: Thank you, Ben. Uh, Glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. We're glad to have you. We cover a lot on this show, and sometimes we're covering issues that are challenging to our industry and covering topics that we wish would either go away or get resolved. But in this sense, we're talking about some really good news. So happy to have you on to to share some of this good news. And let's go ahead and get started today. So, David, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into clean energy and what you're working on now with SELC? Uh,
0: Sure. Uh, You know, before joining the Southern Environmental Law Center, as as you mentioned, I had a career doing capital defense work. And, and that was really inspired by some of the groundbreaking work of lawyers at NAACP's Legal Defense Fund, who had demonstrated how racial bias had such a pernicious effect on, on who was sentenced to death and who was not. Uh, but as I came to better understand the scope of the climate crisis, I just felt personally compelled to devote myself to work That would be part of addressing climate change, but in a way that incorporates that commitment to racial and economic justice. And at SELC, I've really been fortunate to to have a chance to do that, you know, representing groups like the North Carolina Justice Center, North Carolina Housing Coalition, and Southern Alliance for Clean Energy at the Utilities Commission in in rate cases and other dockets to push back against things like regressive fixed charges. on on residential bills that that both harm low-income customers, but also uh, undercut incentives to invest in energy efficiency and rooftop solar. And likewise, my work on the Atlantic Coast Pipeline was focused on environmental justice concerns. I know we're gonna talk more about that, but specifically that involved challenges to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission's inadequate environmental impact statement. That ignored the risks of disproportionate harm to communities of color and Native Americans along the whole route, but in particular, uh, ignored the pollution that the Union Hill community in Buckingham would have faced uh, where the Atlantic Coast Pipeline planned its uh, compressor station. Uh, we also brought a successful legal challenge in the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals to the air permit for that compressor station on both environmental justice and Clean Air Act grounds.
1: Wow, that's that's really important work, and it ties into what we try to do here on Squeaky Clean and at NCSDA, working to advance that equity piece that is often left out of the clean energy conversation. We have to inject equity into the conversation. And so it's so great to hear that you have this as a core tenant of your work, because that's definitely a message that we try to get out on this show and explain to people that yes, we want a transition to clean energy and a clean economy, but really we want an equitable transition so that it benefits all North Carolinians equally. So really happy that you're doing that work. And you touched on it a bit. And spoiler alert to all of our listeners, you've already seen it in the title of this episode, but the Atlantic Coast Pipeline has been canceled, which is huge news. I think it was really exciting for a lot of us in the industry. But Let's backtrack to when this pipeline was still a very real possibility, and some would have even called it a likelihood, because of the stakeholders and companies that were behind it. So, David, what was the impetus for this massive pipeline, and can you walk us through a bit of the history there?
0: Sure, really, you'd have to ask officials, at uh, executives at Dominion and Duke about what the impetus for the project was, but from the outside looking in, it always felt like those companies were drawn to the potential lucrative rate of return on investment that FERC, or again, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, allows for these massive interstate gas pipelines. I mean, these companies uh, you know, could have expected to earn about fifteen a 15% return, which is really hard to get anywhere
1: else. And it was an $8 billion project, right?
0: That it it ballooned into a projected eight billion dollar project when it was first announced in twenty fourteen. They initially said it would be around four and a half billion, then five billion, and it just you know year after year the projections of the cost continued to increase. Um, within a you know those first couple of years after Duke and Dominion announced this project, independent electricity and gas analysts you know reviewed the project and determined that there really wasn't necessary for meeting the energy needs of Virginians or North Carolinians. And and that's important because those companies told FERC that the primary purpose of this pipeline was to fuel new gas electricity generation, well, new and existing gas electricity generation in those two states. Um, and it always troubled us that the purported need for this project was Not demonstrated by any kind of market demand, but really just with contracts that have been signed between the owners of the Atlantic Coast Pipeline, principally Dominion and Duke, and their affiliated regulated utilities. And really, ever since the um, project was before FERC for its approval, we argue that that kind of affiliate agreement is not a good proxy for showing need. And that the customers, uh, those Duke Energy and Dominion Energy customers, uh, were going to be, those captive rate payers, were going to be ultimately at risk for being on the hook for paying for that whole project, or at least a a significant part of it. And again, it just became even clearer as the years went by that it was going to be harder and harder to justify this pipeline. Uh, you know, Dominion in Virginia had historically inflated its projected need for new electricity generation. I mean, so much so that the State Corporation Commission took the unprecedented step of rejecting the company's integrated resource plan in 2018 and telling them to go back and use more accurate projections. Um, and again, we could we could talk more about how there are similar dynamics in North Carolina. Um but ultimately, the landscape, even putting that to the side, the energy landscape has changed so dramatically since 2014. Um, and the the FERC authorization, the, the Certificate of Public Convenience and Necessity that, that was issued back in 2017, was going to expire this October with only 6% of the pipeline in the ground and almost all of that in West Virginia. And, the company's application to extend that certificate to give them more time to build the pipeline—you know—we we, we challenge that uh, on behalf of our clients. The FERC included a um, a really detailed analysis from Synapse Energy Economics, and we can talk more about that as we go on. But you know, the report's title kind of sums it up: "Obsolete Atlantic Coast Pipeline has nothing to deliver." an examination of the dramatic shifts in the energy policy and economic landscapes in Virginia and North Carolina shows that there's little need for new gas generation.
1: When I saw the headlines about the cancellation of the Atlantic coast pipeline, I was shocked and I had been seeing some permits being held up in different areas. I figured that was par for the course with a project of this size you mentioned some of the issues in terms of the lack of need for this pipeline, but is there one singular ultimate reason why the Atlantic Coast Pipeline was canceled, or do you see it as a confluence of different issues that culminated in this project simply not being viable? That's a great question,
0: it, but, I, I, but I think at the outset, it's important to stress how atypical the situation really was. You know what happens too often is that FERC has granted their certificate orders, their again, their certificate of public convenience and necessity, under the natural gas Act at the same time that other state and federal agencies issue their authorizations, their permits. And because of a process that FERC would engage in that we can talk about a little bit more later, it was really hard to get into court and challenge those projects. Um, at the same time, construction was allowed to proceed. So in a typical case, before a party had even gotten into court to challenge the ultimate FERC decision, a pipeline would be already completed. Um, and I think what was unusual about the Atlantic Coast Pipeline was that um, a lot of the permitting problems that the project had were ultimately self-inflicted there were too too many rushed processes too many um, concerns raised by agencies that were overlooked and um, you know the eight uh, you know eight permits uh, that were required to proceed were missing at the time that the company abandoned ship and decided to cancel the project I mean that included the um, fish and Wildlife Service Permit uh, on Endangered Species, the Forest Service uh, Special Use Permit to cross the Mahanagila and George Washington National Forests, um, the Virginia Air Pollution Control Board Permit that I referenced before that, that I had the good fortune to work on, the um, permit to cross the Blue Ridge Parkway, some of the water permits. I mean, it was by the time the Atlantic, decided to cancel the project. It was largely an unpermitted project and, again, was facing this um, deadline of October when it was supposed to have been completed. So, again, the one of the ways that FERC has um, made it harder for, for landowners and uh, people concerned about, um, about interstate gas pipelines to, to get into court is this practice of issuing tolling orders where they would, under the Natural Gas Act, issue the certificate, and before you can go into court, you have to apply for a rehearing. You have to say, for, basically, can you reconsider? Under the law, they're supposed to make that decision within 30 days. Their routine practice had evolved over the years to, to grant the rehearing petition request for the sole purpose of saying we need more time to consider it, but allowing construction to proceed, but to, but barring plaintiffs from going to court uh, to suing over the project. I mean, even even our claims against FERC, the ultimate challenge to the certificate had not yet even been heard in the D.C. Circuit Uh, that that case was still pending. So thankfully, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals recently threw out that tolling order process and said it violated the Natural Gas Act. But it's been one of the ways that these pipelines in other parts of the country had been built before litigants before uh, people had a chance to get into court and, and challenge them.
1: So earlier, you were you alluded to something that I want to to go deeper with, which is the Integrated Resource Plan or IRP that Duke Energy will be filing in September at the North Carolina Utilities Commission. For our listeners who might be a little unfamiliar, an integrated resource plan is a roadmap that large utilities use to plan out generation acquisitions over 5, 10, or 20 years, or even more. Many utilities use integrated resource plans for coal, natural gas, and now more clean energy and smart grid technology. In North Carolina, the IRP is a 15-year road map. IRPs examine foreseeable future resources with regard to transmission lines, substations, power plants, end users, and the utilities and operators responsible for taking care of the transmission and distribution of electricity. Their ultimate purpose is to answer one question. How, as a utility, do we plan to meet future electricity needs? the IRP outlines the necessary actions to enable the utility continue providing the public with electricity. So with that being said, David, how will the cancellation of the ACP potentially shift Duke Energy's energy planning? And do you see this having a significant impact on the upcoming IRP?
0: That's a really interesting question, because, again, it gets back to this Fundamental issue of was there a need for this pipeline? You know, as I as I said at the outset, there was really solid evidence that this eight billion dollar project was not ever needed uh, for Duke Energy to meet its electricity generation needs. But I think even more important than the cancellation of the ACP is is considering again this changed policy landscape and and changed economic landscape. Uh, you know Duke Energy's own corporate carbon reduction goals um, aren't consistent with the massive build-out of gas-fired electricity generation um, that might have supported something like the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. The um, Clean Energy Plan that DEQ in North Carolina has developed pursuant to Governor Cooper's Executive Order 80 likewise uh, is not, you know, not consistent with uh, a vision of our energy future that would rely on the amount of gas that the Atlantic Coast Pipeline could have delivered. And these upcoming RPS will be our first glimpse at how Duke Energy says, you know, they're modeling that future uh, under a clean energy plan and under its own carbon reduction goals. You know, again, as part of that same Synapse report that I I mentioned earlier, you know, because Duke hadn't filed those IRPs yet, they had to model, you know, what compliance with those plans would look like themselves, and it, and they found that by 2030, you know, the amount of possible gas generation that Duke could justifiably build, again, just you know to to potentially meet a winter peak day. In 2030 uh, would result in in such a small amount of new gas demand that that you wouldn't you wouldn't econo- there would be no, no economic justification to try to get that from a massive new interstate gas pipeline it would, could easily be met by uh, gas capacity additions that have already been built or already been planned for uh, existing pipeline networks. So all that's to say, the cancellation of the pipeline itself shouldn't have a big impact on the IRP. I think it's these other factors, um, you know, relatively flat demands, um, decreasing costs of clean renewable technology, um, and uh, the the need to deploy more aggressively demand response technologies to help meet um, some of these winter peak issues that that the utility has experienced in recent years. I mean, you have to remember that for so long, um, the planning for meeting peak demand was always focused on summer afternoons uh, when a lot of air conditioners were running. And because of the, for a lot of reasons, and in part because of the success of solar in North Carolina, there has been a a shift to a concern around some of these, you know, meeting some of these, Winter peaks, but again, I think what we're finding is you can more cost effectively meet those with demand response, battery storage, energy efficiency, and um, you know renewable energy that's tied to those battery uh, storage resources. So again, if we're going to have a, a sensible energy future, it couldn't have relied on on the amount of gas that that the ACP would have been capable of deploying.
1: Right. And as you mentioned <clears throat> right, and as you mentioned, North Carolina as a state has already expressed that it wants a clean energy future and it wants to really make the existing fossil fuel infrastructure transition into clean energy infrastructure. So this new pipeline that would have made justification for fossil fuel resources, new fossil fuel assets and generation resources to be developed just seemed totally at odds with the state's interest in pursuing clean energy. And then you even look at legislation like House bill 589 where the state legislature is trying to advance clean energy in, in Senate bill 3 from 2007 there's this long history of North Carolina moving in the direction of clean energy so that seemed very antithetical to to our state's response and in our state's interests and you know I hate to I hate to bring this up but I'm gonna ask it because I'm curious and, and I'm sure some of the listeners are also maybe thinking this in the back of their mind but when I saw that this story, was breaking and I first learned that the pipeline was canceled, I thought it was too good to be true. I, I looked at the article and I was like, okay, wait, where's the catch? You know, what's the, what's the plan that just puts this away for a few years and then it comes back later in the future. David, can you put my mind at ease that this pipeline will never see the light of day? Or is there any chance that this project in this pipeline could rear its head some point in the future?
0: You know, I had a similar reaction when I first saw the news. But you know, since the uh, announcement on Fourth of July weekend, you know, the company has informed FERC that it's canceling the project. Uh, it said it no longer needs the certificate extension that it asked for. Um, so that means that it's that it, the the most important permit is set to expire in October, and they've already told that agency they don't seek an extension of the permit. Now there is an asterisk there where there's a kind of an ancillary part of this called the supply header project up in West Virginia and Pennsylvania that, um, you know, that they have now said they want to explore the possibility of completing, but um, that's a separate, a separate issue. And ultimately I think they would need a separate application to pursue that. Um, They've informed the federal court. uh, Again, as I said, the, the, the challenge to that FERC certificate was still pending in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. The company has informed the court that they're um, canceling the project and that they don't need to go forward with oral arguments in that case. And it's still missing eight required permits. So the expense and the effort it would take to try to go and um, you know solve those permitting problems. It is something that couldn't happen without some transparency. So again, if since it's missing those permits, I I, I don't feel like there's any real concern about this um, coming back to
1: life. Huh. Well, that's good to hear. I'm sure our listeners are taking a deep sigh of relief right now because again it's just with these kinds of things I mean it seems like they go away and they sneak back and you know you turn around and now they're they're you know twice as big and has has three three times as many heads as it did before so I appreciate you clarifying that for us David as we're wrapping up today this is, of course, great news for clean energy everywhere, but in particular, it's good news for North Carolina's clean energy economy. The cancellation of this multi billion dollar fossil fuel project hopefully will put the focus and the spotlight back onto, as you mentioned, the decreasing cost of clean energy and the jobs and economic development that clean energy can provide. So given this positive momentum that we're experiencing with the cancellation of the ACP, what are you most excited about when it comes to the future of our state's energy generation mix?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's so much uh, to be excited about. Uh, There, you know, despite the um, you know difficult times we're living through, the there's I think a real passion to embrace a clean energy future and and to to really invest in our communities in a way that um, would be equitable and truly sustainable. There's so much that we can do to make sure. Everyday North Carolinians can benefit directly. Uh, I think first and foremost, I think about energy efficiency and, and the need to expand those utility programs that provide real bill savings and improved comfort and indoor air quality for our state's most vulnerable households. Um, I've had the you know the good fortune to work with some of your colleagues at, at NCSEA on on trying to find ways to expand. Um, in new opportunities for inclusive financing, uh, you know, innovative tools like pay-as-you-save that uh, allow utilities to make direct investments in bill-saving, uh, energy efficiency, uh, that can really unlock whole new sources of, of capital and um, provide great local jobs that can't be outsourced and, again, have all these ancillary benefits of in- improving uh, the quality of life. And indoor air quality, uh, along with it, uh, those same financing tools could could help unlock uh, additional investments in rooftop solar. And um, you know, I've already alluded to the need to to really think more creatively about about expanding demand response and um, other technologies that can help us meet our energy needs without building out new generation. But to the extent we need to build out new generation, as we continue to embrace electrification and, you know, see electrification of our transportation sector as, as one of the keys to fighting climate change. Um, you know, the, the, the promise of, of solar wind and battery storage to really help fill in those gaps. Um, it just gets more and more promising each year as those costs come down and those technologies improve. And as we think more holistically about the need to equitably address climate change, it's going to involve, you know, thinking about our transportation sector more broadly than just EVs, but thinking about our land use policies and how can we create, you know, equitable, affordable, walkable communities um, where, you know, in some ways this, this actually does tie into a lot of the the absolutely necessary demands for rethinking public safety and how we uh, police ourselves and, and and communities um but but part of that is really creating opportunities for affordable housing and again doing that in a way that embraces the sort of deeper kind of sustainability and equity goals uh i think has a big part to play in uh rethinking even um something as basic as as policing so again not not to get too far afield but uh i think there's a lot to be excited about and a lot of momentum behind um you know pushing for the these ideas at the federal level and and in north carolina and so that it's we can't we can't give up the fight uh we can't just assume it's going to happen but but i think it's a, a future worth fighting for
1: Mm. Absolutely. Yes, a future worth fighting for indeed. And with you, David fighting at SELC for an equitable transition to clean energy future, And everyone else in the North Carolina clean energy industry, I know we will be successful and achieve those goals in Executive Order 80 and make that equitable transition that we all are envisioning and and hoping to achieve. So, David, I want to thank you so much for all the work that you've done to bring the end to the ACP and demonstrate how it was unnecessary. And I also want to thank you for being a Guest on the show today, so thank you so much, David Neal of SCLC, for joining us on the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast.
0: Ben, thank you so much for having me. And uh, you know, before we close, I just I, I would be it would be wrong to to leave out such a big part of that story. wasn't just having the expert analysis showing there's not a need, but having people in directly affected communities who were had the courage to stand up and fight against this project was absolutely crucial to to the overall fight. So it was an organizing effort in addition to a, a legal effort. And um, I just wanted to make sure we didn't lose in the story, the importance of those communities who, who stood up and, and um, never gave up that fight.
1: Mm, yeah, that is definitely so important. And we really appreciate you making that acknowledgement. So, Thank you again, David, for coming on the show and being so awesome with the work you do. I really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. And that's all, folks. The 33rd episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy podcast, bringing you the latest in clean energy right to your ears. Thanks for joining us today, and my key takeaway builds off of what David was saying when he explained that the cancellation of the Atlantic coast pipeline was successful due primarily to the communities who would have been affected by this destructive project standing up and speaking out. The people joined their voices and took a stand, and that's really what made the difference here we can use this as an example in our own lives and stand up for clean energy in our communities as a positive alternative to the negative impacts of fossil fuel projects thanks again for tuning in today but before you hop off here today i need three things from you one please visit energync.org/wice2020 to contribute to our women in clean energy project and support women in our industry we need this Two, please visit makingenergywork.com to register for the next Making Energy Work webinar in our series. This one is focused on innovative financing models for low and moderate income participation in clean energy. And three, please have a great day. Take care.